start yet. Oh, oh, it says pending. Oh, there we go. Okay. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Know Your Place podcast. I'm Charles Altendorf. I am the host here. This is episode 81. And we have a very special guest here with us today. Uh, Jeremy, say hello to the fans. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Uh, that was very understated as a hello. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me on your show. I appreciate it. (laughs) Well, thanks for coming on, Jeremy. Uh, Jeremy and I actually go to church together, which is pretty cool. Um, But uh, the reason why I was really interested and wanted to have Jeremy on today was Jeremy is, uh, he is actually a transplant to America from Britain. And did did I understand correctly, you also teach American history? Yes, that's right. I do. Yeah. So this was just fascinating to me. And I just had all kinds of questions I had to ask after I found that out. So uh, I guess uh, we'll we'll open up a little bit here. Um, I guess... uh, what was sort of your your childhood like in Britain, and what was your first like? What do you have a first memory of what you thought of of America, or like when it was introduced to you? Uh, for me, my first introduction to Britain was actually uh, probably Beatles music. My parents were huge Beatles fans, and like one of my favorite songs when I was a really little kid was the song Penny Lane. And the irony of that, of course, is now I'm a geographer. And yep. Penny Lane is kind of like a geography-oriented song. But anyway, go ahead, Jerry. That's right. Well, uh, I'm going to shock you and uh, tell you that actually uh, I wasn't born in Britain at all. I was actually born okay. in Africa. Ah, um, okay, cool. I was born in a, uh, in a country called Rhodesia. Um, oh, which wow, is... really? You're Rhodesian. That's cool. I've studied yes. a little bit yep. of history of that. Cool yep. deal. Yep. Yep. So... Uh, my uh, great grandmother, um, after World War One, um, she met a soldier who uh, was deployed to Europe. He was in the South African Army, and um, they decided that uh, there were more opportunities in in the colonies, as it were. And so, uh, in 1921, I think it was, they emigrated to uh, to Rhodesia, um, and generations of my family were born and raised there. And uh, I guess I was the last. The last there. That'll be my epitaph on my uh, my uh, tombstone one day. It will be last of the Rhodesians. Last of the Rhodesians. So, uh, so at some point you did leave. How old were you when you left Rhodesia? Uh, very young. I was about three okay. years old. Okay. All right. So, yes, so you didn't like you weren't like a teenager there when uh, things were going down. Now, okay. No, no. So, growing up in uh, Britain, um, obviously because my family was was all from Rhodesia. Um, they were all from Rhodesia, so um, had a. Uh, it was almost like a different upbringing to to everyone else. I felt very different um, in school, especially in high school. Like uh, I was brought up with a different sort of culture. I think um, colonists tended to be much tougher, much hardier. Um, no nonsense. You really, there's no time to sort of. Um, um, pussyfoot around things as it were you know um (laughs) yeah yeah. so um yeah I just felt very different growing up in in Britain um in some ways I felt like I didn't belong and I think that's where um where my interest in American history sort of came from as well um fun fact uh Rhodesia and uh 
um, the 13 colonies as they were, the only two entities who are, that were part of the British Empire that um, declared independence illegally from, from Great Britain. And so I was always kind of interested, like, why was the why were the 13 colonies successful in declaring independence, but Rhodesia was not? Um, and so I always kind of compared and contrast the two. Um, so yeah, yeah I, I think... guess that's where my... No, go ahead and finish. Sorry, I got a little too right, jumpy. That's, yeah, that's <laughs> just, uh, I was just saying, that's where my interest in American history, I think, really kind of stemmed from. Yeah, I think uh, as uh, I sort of, I, I listened to this one BBC segment, I forget how long ago it was, probably like 10 years ago now, but like they had a thing where it was like, why are some countries successful in independence and not others? And they, this was at the mm-hmm. South Sudan time, you know? Yeah. And uh, basically it really boils down to international recognition. And I think America just got really lucky at the time that the French and Spanish were very sympathetic you know, and they were looking right. to prop somebody up. But I think eventually right. America would have probably become independent anyway at some point, you know. just I hear that a lot. Yeah, I hear that a lot. I actually think, um, I think my take is a little different. I think oh, if, okay. of course, there's, a, there's so many different moments in American history, especially in the history of the colonies, where if just this one thing had changed and was slightly different. For example, if the Albany Plan of Union had been as successful, um then chances are taxation would never have taken place or at least it would have taken place with the consent of the uh, with the consent of the colonists and so i think eventually what would have happened was america would have evolved to become something more like canada um or more like australia so still within the british empire and eventually would have achieved dominion status and then independence but with strong ties to britain but of course um the colonies as they were and don't know if they would have been called the united states if if under that system they had become um independent they would have been much smaller because um they would have only gone as far as the mississippi river i don't think britain was really interested in colonizing anything west of the mississippi so that would have been kind of interesting to it's kind of interesting yeah. to think about mexico would obviously be a much larger country than uh, than it is today yeah, um, Mexico is really a strange one because they really had a lot of potential and it just didn't seem like they ever really lived up to the potential that they had as a nation. I mean, it's not terrible, you know, but it's it yeah. definitely you when you look at the map and you see the extent of Mexico at its peak, you really, you know. Yeah, yeah, but they weren't they weren't really um, doing much with Texas and California. Yeah. Nope. Um, and obviously the United States see those as territories that are ripe for for pulling them away from Mexico, for annexing annexing them, whether that was the right thing to do or not. Um, the potential was there, as you say, but Mexico wasn't exactly uh, uh, fulfilling its uh, its opportunity. Yeah. Well, cool. So you kind of touched on this, so it's sort of like a similar thing to you know, how you grew up, you know, the Rhodesian experience, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so did you, when was the first time you ever really studied American history? Was it, uh, do they, do they teach it in British school? Like, is that like a touchy yeah. subject? I mean, <laughs> no, no. So, uh, so if you're familiar with Harry Potter, the, <laughs> yeah. yeah, the, uh, the education system in Harry Potter kind of mimics the uh, British education system today. So all 
British high schools up until the age of 16, they take um, what are known as their GCSEs, so their General Certificate of Education. In uh, Harry Potter, that would be their, their newts, I think it is. Um, and then uh, you can leave after that. 16 years old, you can leave school. You can go off to um, college, like uh, get a trade. Um, you can go get a job if you so desire. Probably not a very good job uh, at 16. Um, you know, do do whatever you like. But if you intend to go on to university, you have to then uh, study for two further years and you specialize in um, content area. And uh, I've always just had a love of history as you can tell. So um, I uh, study for what we call our A-levels, Harry Potter, that's the owls. Um, so I took, uh, I took three, um, um, three subjects. I took uh, history, uh, law, and um, English, as we call it, or language arts, as you like to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was during history, um, we studied totalitarian regimes um, one year, and then the second year we studied uh, liberal democracies. Um, and so that was really my first sort of like in-depth study of American history. Well, that's really cool. Well, that's really uh, cool. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I guess, uh, you know, obviously through schooling, you know, you always get various bits of American history. But of course, I took AP U.S. history when I was in a sophomore in high school. Mm-hmm. So I, I was always pretty interested. I ended up minoring in history in college. So course we are a little bit slower here so that was when i was 17 mm-hmm. that i did that <coughs> but give me a second there but yeah <laughs> might need a sip of water i have some coffee here that's very un uh, un uh, british drinking coffee Well, Charles, your sound dropped out. I oh, oh it's Sorry. funny you bring up the coffee bit. There we uh, go. Okay, I can hear you now. Sorry. Yeah, you got me. We had a uh, we had an Australian write into our geography group, and they were like, "Why don't you have electric tea kettles?" And I was like, "We don't really drink hot tea here very hot often. Tea like <laughs> some people do, but like it's not a thing. I think that really goes all the way back to the 1700s." <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so no, that's cool. Like I said, I uh, I studied American history in high school a little bit, and then college I minored in it, and then I found out you can major in geography, and that was really sort of my calling. But I always mm-hmm. love it. I love I I was actually really big into like the founding fathers there in the eighteen hundreds. So yeah, I, yeah, yeah. That's my um, that's my forte. That's my uh, favorite period of American history. I know it's so funny being uh being nominally british rhodesian whatever but i love um i love the founding generation um and you know as a young man i was uh i think i was always really sympathetic to the colonists and to the founders and then i don't say that in britain (laughs) i know right but then moving over here and spending much more time researching and reading um you know as a as a teacher I actually find myself much more sympathetic to Britain. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. And so um, the kids, when I teach them, they always ask, well, what would you have been, Mr. Thompson? Were you a patriot or a loyalist? And so I tell them, I'll tell you when, when we get to that. And so when I teach the lesson on uh, loyalism and why um, some colonists remained loyal, I go in and I wear a T-shirt and it's, and it's got the um, 
the uh, the royal coat of arms on it and then underneath it says loyalist and so th- th- uh-huh. that's this is my position <laughs> <laughs> no i just found it very fascinating to meet you you know because of course it's it's a classic trope that there's americans who become anglophiles right like you know yeah my wife yeah. and i are watching the series fraser and of course you know niles yeah. likes daphne and daphne's british right and I mean, I think yeah. everybody, I think almost every American goes through that phase because we still share the language, right? You know, when I was a kid, it was mm-hmm. like Monty Python and the Beatles. And right. let's see, uh, I'm also still into this one band. They're called the Wombats. They're also from Liverpool. And so okay. I, so I'm, I'm kind of, I've, I've always been kind of, and I really love the novelist Graham Greene. I read a lot of his stuff. And it's kind of okay. funny because he I think I started getting into him because my parents were big into the James Bond movies. And like he yeah. wrote similar stuff to that before. Like he even makes a joke about it in a novel he writes that Ian Fleming made more, got more famous than him because it's funny anyway. But right. yeah, so I think everyone goes through that phase. So it's just, it's been really interesting to meet somebody, anyone who lived over there that like has like an American phase like that. I think, um, I think he would. I think you would find that um, most British people um, have a love of American culture. Um, I think you would find that um, a lot of British people are fascinated by the United States. There are some things which we obviously admire about the US, um, just the, the the scale, the size of the US. Um, I was uh, working a football game, uh, one, your football game uh, last week, and uh, funny enough, um, the assistant principal at my school is also British. So we uh-huh. were kind of talking and we were like, you know, don't you just love it here? Like how American high schools have like these huge, great big like stadium complexes, you know. And yeah. I mean, there's a place for just about every kind of kid in an American school, whereas you just don't find that in British schools. I mean, you know, if you're not going to be on the the football team or the soccer team or whichever team's playing, well, then you could be a cheerleader or you could be in the band or you know, there's just something, there's something for kids to do, you know, for them to find their, their calling and to sort of be immersed in that. And unfortunately, you just don't really get that as much in British schools. Um, we have sports, um, cricket teams, obviously, and what we call football, soccer. Um, but if you're not on the team, that's as far as it goes. There's not really much else for, for kids to do. And I think um, that's why we tend to have quite a few problems with uh, antisocial behavior and um, juvenile crime in the UK, which is kind of a dirty little secret that no one talks about. Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of, you you bring that up, it's sort of like a larger theme I always get into when I talk to British people or European people, you know, who like to throw some shade every once in a while, which I get, you know, since America's Growing up here, it's funny, and you know, now that I'm in this international geography group, I talk to people around the world all the time. The bullseye is just huge. But anyway, yeah, you know, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. I was just thinking that when you said that, I was thinking, you know, when you're number one, you've got a big bullseye on your on your back. Yeah. But I think the biggest thing I've noticed is, you know, you know, there is definitely uh, more perhaps stable welfare for people in other countries than here. And, and yeah. some other things, but America really is a place that's. I always explain to people, it's great risk, great reward. Like you can literally yes. try anything yeah. and make it, and you can also fail. Yes. But you're given yeah. the chance here in a way you're just not anywhere else. You know. 
Yes, in uh, if you've seen a uh, awful tabloid press in the in the UK, um, they love to build people up, and then they uh, they can't wait for them to fall, so they can uh, they can ridicule them and make fun of them. Um, you just don't see that um, that kind of. There are opportunities for success, but you, I think you have to work so much harder in the UK. Um, and honestly, that's one of the reasons why I chose to settle here. Um, there's just a wealth of opportunities that you just don't have in, in England. And we are still, I think, to a certain degree, a country that um, is affected by our class structure. It's not as pronounced, obviously, as it once was, but it is there. Um, for example, I my um, childhood ambition was to be a pilot just wanted to fly and I still do if I won the lottery tomorrow um, I would quit school and <laughs> and go get my pilot's license um, but you know it's the likes of um, Prince Harry who's very controversial obviously nowadays yeah um, yeah. They, you know he wanted to be in the military and it's a great place for him to be because there's obviously natural protection built around him right. but at the same time they didn't want him like directly on the front lines because you know he's right. a royal a working royal uh, what well, he was then um so what did they find him to do well he suddenly ama ama amazingly gets like helicopter training which is so competitive so immensely competitive but because of where he's born his wealth and his privilege he gets to jump the line and you know he took a spot from someone who probably was exceptionally deserving if not more so yeah and I will, i'll even and go as I'll, far as say that that kind of stuff sometimes happens here but i just it seems so much more prevalent in europe than here you know like it's yes. it's like still ingrained in society there yes and, yeah yeah in the main but like you mentioned it. um over over there we have a a, a wealth a welfare system that you just don't find as much here and i know that's really controversial with a lot of americans but right. um i read a book earlier this year and it was called um the nordic theory of everything um, couldn't remember the author. Um, similar experience to, my, to mine. She was uh, Finnish, came over here, um, married uh, an American, and then just found profound differences between how America is run to how obviously Finland or the Nordic countries are run. And um, in that book, she really dispels a lot of the myths about um, the welfare state. You know, we tend to think, oh, they're they're heavily taxed in in those countries in order to pay for those systems. Um, but she kind of explains that actually the tax is relatively similar to what we have in the United States. It's just that the government does better with its money. It invests it smarter and smarter ways. And I think that's one of the things that really still bothers me a lot about the US is the fact that um, healthcare is just not um provided by the government and now that's very controversial i know some of your listeners are probably be <laughs> frothing at the mouth to hear me say that but um but you know the concept of like having health insurance you've got to have health insurance um in order to access the healthcare system or at least a decent level of healthcare. well that ties you to an employer and in some cases you know you get people stuck in jobs that they absolutely despise and they hate, but they they keep that job because they need their health insurance. Well, you know, kind of, in my mind, thinking about concepts of freedom and liberty, you know, that you're eroding someone's someone's liberty to their freedom to like move to pursue other opportunities that perhaps they would enjoy more, that would give them a greater sense of fulfillment. But they they have to have that health insurance. 
Yeah, well, I, I mean, obviously, I don't think it's a big secret. I'm a libertarian. Uh, that's probably been discovered. I can't really hide that online. But, uh, you know, uh, I think the biggest issue is there's just our government's just bad at running things, you know, yeah. especially on the <laughs> yeah. federal level. You know, it, yeah. it's like I would yeah. love. Yeah, it's like because I got into it, got into it once with somebody. I have a friend who's part of the who's a retired British uh, Royal Navy person. And mm -hmm. he, he always talks about how much he loves the NHS. And I was like, you know, I just don't think we could do that nationally here. Now, a state, a state might be able to do that. And I think Massachusetts has something kind of like that. But it's okay. just. You just got to understand, like, our our federal government, they just, they are terrible. I wouldn't trust them with anything. I don't even want to pay their taxes. Yeah. I don't trust them with money, you know? Yeah, but it yeah. Is, it wasn't, I absolutely uh, get it. I understand. It's got to be a culture shock for someone who's, you know, just used to being able to just get health care, whereas, like, here, you really have to plan your life around how you're going to get your health care. Being a... Uh... A child of the '80s, I'm a big uh, Ronald Reagan fan. Um, oh, okay. Even though he's like, you know, he's a Republican Party kind of like yeah. statuesque figure, you know. Um, but he had so many great quips, and I think one of uh, one of his greatest ones was, uh, "I'm from the government, and I'm here to help." You know, yeah, it's the, yeah, yeah. The thing that causes people to run in fear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's funny you mentioned him. He uh, he actually gave a speech at my parents' hometown when he was campaigning mm. for re-election in Port Washington, Wisconsin. So they still have the old okay. band shell painted up from when he was there. Yeah. It's kind of like a little monument to Reagan there, which is yeah, it's kind of wild because my parents are kind of lean more in the Democrat way. So it's kind of funny. But, you know, he, I guess my parents' county has kind of voted Republican for a while now, for a long time in Wisconsin. Yeah. So. Yeah. But I yeah. just think of... Uh, Anytime we start talking about political parties, uh, you know, being the historian, I just think of Washington and his farewell address and yeah. warning us against factions as they were known in that time uh, and the dangers of forming factions. And he gives very, you know, he's very clear in his vision as to what that might lead to. And I fear we might be living out some of those um, those fears that he discussed so so clearly in his farewell address. Yeah, I think, uh, unfortunately, I don't know if it was avoidable or not, you know, but that is absolutely what he warned against. He's yeah. probably right. I'm also a big fan of Eisenhower. and Eisenhower's farewell address was kind of along a similar tone as well. And you know. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He warned against the industrial military complex, and ironically, he was the man that really kind of started it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, I have a soft spot for him, I have to admit, because, you know, he was a German-American as well. And, uh, okay. You know, uh, I uh, – in Wisconsin, where my family's from, you know, it's it's pretty easy to be a German-American. And in greater Cincinnati, it kind of is, too. I went to high school in northern Kentucky. But, you know, yeah. uh, there are other parts of America that still have a hard time accepting that there's a whole swath of people – from a dramatic background here too that don't really you know that aren't really the anglo side you know and it's yeah it's been it's yeah. been rather interesting to see how that plays out you know uh but i uh i uh i love i loved eisenhower I, eisenhower you know he you know somebody's a good person 
is a, a really respected leader when both parties offer them the nomination. <laughs> that's yeah. yeah, 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 that's true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, don't think that'll happen anytime soon. <laughs> I don't think anybody else will get that get that prestigious. No. Skin. I think for a while before he had gotten his reputation sort of took a hit, I think Colin Powell would have almost been there. But yes. his reputation yeah. took a big hit during the Iraq War. So it did. Yeah, yeah. it did. Um, ironically, I was um, um, I was working. I just graduated um, university when all of that was kind of coming around. Um, and so the first job that I held uh, outside of college was I was working as a civil servant for the uh, British government. And so. Oh. Uh, I was working for the Ministry of Defence and uh, was attached to the Royal Air Force. So I have some kind of insights into how that Iraq war and everything kind of took place. And uh, uh don't think I can really speak too freely about some of those things. But I remember no, seeing Colin Powell. On the... Oh, no, absolutely not. No, but <laughs> I remember seeing Colin Powell at the United Nations and, you know, um, giving that speech. And I think we were all very much uh, hoodwinked and believed him so we just believed our governments. Uh, not, yeah. It's not. It's not really on Powell. He was a representative of the government. It's on. Uh, yeah. It's on the government itself. Yeah. But yeah, that really uh, that era has really formed a lot of my adulthood, and it's it's kind of sad because you know I I tell people all the time like uh, I don't want to be that cynical about you know because I don't believe that generally people are bad. I don't want to believe that generally everybody is bad people. Right. given the power right. everyone will just abuse it and be a bad person but like yes. you keep proving yeah. me right repeatedly <laughs> so you know so it's as, as a teacher it's really hard as well um because we obviously start u.s history in eighth grade with um with the arrival of the first settlers at jamestown and then later on um plymouth and uh you know we we study documents like the mayflower compact and trying to make that argument to students that we need to have government in order to protect us from from ourselves and so that we can live in an orderly civilized society but then there are just so many instances where we just have such bad government um you know it's we, we've got to find a way to walk that fine line between anarchy on the one set on one hand and then just corruption and dare i say dictatorship on the other hand yeah I don't know. I don't know where the, the best line is there. I think I, I consider myself kind of a disciple of Jefferson. And I think he mm -hmm. had an all right balance. But he also made some, you know, very questionable decisions when he had a position of leadership. That's you know, it. We, uh, I don't really, really know who you could say would be better. Certainly in modern times, it seems like there's been a lot more questionable decisions made by leadership. Well, so, you know. When we talk about Jefferson, you know, we talk about obviously his greatness and his eloquence as a writer. And, you know, we look at his presidency and how he tried to um, slim the presidency down. And yet, ultimately, he's just a man that's so full of contradiction. You know, he talks about ending slavery, yet he's one of the biggest slaveholders in, in Virginia. Um, he talked about slimming the government down, and yet under his administration, the government grew. You know, yeah. he talked about a strict interpretation of the constitution and then he ends up 
purchasing uh, the Louisiana Territory, and there's right. no mention in the Constitution about adding territory to the to the states. Um, but thinking about what you're saying, with like, what's the best type of government? Um, I, I kind of think of recently with the, um, the recent passing of uh, Her Majesty the Queen, and I think of Thomas Hobbes, who talks about um, having a benign dictator. Well, she's probably the closest living embodiment, or she was the closest embodying living, uh, what am I saying, um, <laughs> that we had um, that, that resembles that. Granted, she didn't have um, a whole lot of political power. I mean, it was all theoretical. And I think if she tried to exercise it, there would have been um, a civil war um, in the UK. But she was just absolutely beloved, I think, because as a, as a figurehead of the country that didn't take a stance didn't express a political opinion um she was essentially free to represent all society she didn't have to bow to one particular group at the expense of another group yeah i mean i've heard a lot of arguments well i was living in bloomington indiana by iu for a little while and there was a guy there who straight up called himself a royalist and Mm -hmm. wanted america to bring back a royalty of some some kind <laughs> and <clears throat> i think that's getting popular again which is uh it's interesting right because you know interesting yeah. given our legacy but you know i think people do because we i talk about this a lot i have another friend who's uh i would call him kind of a socialist and he like we get on the radio together a lot and debate things and you know he um I, me and him both kind of agree, though, that people are always looking for that figure like the queen, you know, right? They want that figure. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. so really as a libertarian, my cell is almost really tough to somebody, right? That you can yeah. you can do it yourself. You don't need that mm -hmm. figure, which is a much tougher sell to people. But I, uh, I think really, um, you know the government that is that pe it really comes down to a trust thing and you know when it gets so eroded you get what you just get factions and infighting and craziness and i don't really yeah. know where it ends i mean i think it's partially cyclical you know because i i think uh, we're right now in a trend where everyone's real you know a lot of people are sort of down on things and it's kind of understandable mm -hmm. but i do also kind of believe over time it'll pass some point we'll be on another swing you know uh, my parents were my parents graduated high school in like 84 and 82 so when they were little kids a lot of people were like america's over it's gone or whatever and then you know during the 90s yeah. when i was a kid america was on a huge upswing right so yeah yeah i i do think it's a bit cyclical and i think people just need to would be better off you know again i'm talking to a historian so if they just took a longer <laughs> view sometimes you know and relaxed a little bit yeah you know well and you know that that's a great statement that um and a great advertisement for historical education right you know we uh so many people just think that social studies or history is uh, is simply irrelevant because you're dealing with the past but you know like you said we have cycles of history and um, while things don't tend to repeat themselves exactly, there are situations where we can look back for inspiration um, and where we can look for examples as to how to best respond to situations. You know, my fear is with uh, so much political infighting at the moment and with 
the state of our economy, um, which apparently we're not in recession, <laughs> if you believe we're me. We're not in recession. Yeah, yes. we're not in recession. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, as people feel the pinch of that, especially with like the energy crisis that's coming, um, you know, I worry that people might turn to populist leaders, um, as we saw in Europe in the in the 30s. And, you know, where where might that lead us? Well, and it's really funny you bring that up because me and my socialist friend, we were on the radio the other day. We we found out there's a new movement out there called MAGA communism. OK, uh, so you okay. can imagine what that would be. Right. Yeah. And he, he, <laughs> he was, and he was like, well, what is this? How did this come about? I said, look, man, they're just role playing the 1930s all over again. That's all it is. You know, yeah. and he thought that was hilarious. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I've read a lot of uh, Eric, uh, Eric Maria Remark. He wrote All's Quiet on the Western Front. But he also wrote yeah. a ton of novels about between the war, running away from Nazi Germany, because, you know, he was kicked out of the government there. He was a teacher yeah. like you. He got kicked out for mm -hmm. writing about his experience yeah. in war. <laughs> anyway, yeah. well, he, he writes all about it. And, I mean, it's scary sometimes to see the similarities between some of the things he writes about. But I guess I am somewhat cautiously optimistic that I do think there's still hopefully enough people that, that you know, deep down are like, hey, maybe that's a bad idea. But we'll really see. I mean, people's, people are really going to get tested here, especially um, I'm really worried for like Germany and France and some of those countries because yeah. they're facing a, yeah. a much more serious energy crisis than we are. And yes, they are. When you're yeah. cold, you'll do some things, man. You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's been uh, newspaper stories in uh, in the UK uh, about the coming winter because obviously we have cold winters, um, and with the cost of energy at the moment, and also with inflation and the cost of food, to the stories in the newspapers are people have a choice: either heat their homes and go hungry, or feed themselves and then go cold. And uh, when you when basic needs are not being met, people, desperate people will do desperate things. So, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what happens because I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, uh, you know, you, uh, there's a great line from The Godfather uh, part. I think it's part one, actually. Big fan of those movies. Uh, and in there, he says something. They're going to war, all the five families. And he's like, you got to do these things every 10 or 15 years to clean out the bad ball. <laughs> Yeah. I think we're unfortunately yeah. overdue in some places. What was it? Jefferson said um, the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of um, uh, patriots and tyrants. Yeah. Yeah. Patriots <laughs> and tyrants. So, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah that's pretty cool. Uh, you've, you've hit most of the topics I was going after, but I did think of one other one. So we kind of already touched on it, but do you, do you have your favorite? Do you have a, what's your, favorite sort of uh american uh we might have to do this later too uh, at another point sometime too because uh sure. i have a i watched this youtuber his name's logging through history and he actually did a presidential tier list ranking which that was a lot of fun but yeah uh, yeah do, do you have sort of your favorite american figures and then i guess i'll have to do my british ones you know to counteract okay. you okay um Huh. I try not to idolize people too much because, you know, it's probably for the best. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, you'll always be disappointed. There'll always mm-hmm. be something in your part in in their past. You know, everyone has skeletons. Everyone has. Uh, everyone, we're all deeply flawed characters. You know, as Christians, we know that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like I said, I used to love the founding generation, but then through my studies, I kind of. Uh, yeah, I'm sort of a little um, jaded when you found out about their personal life. A little jaded, yeah, yeah, you know. Um, but they, well, you gotta say, even so, they were incredibly brave men to do what they did. Um, I also really admire how much they read of philosophy and debated it. Oh, out. yes, and I sometimes think that that's what our a lot of our politicians are lacking today. Yeah. It should almost be a mandatory course study, study enlightenment philosophers. Yeah. Study the works of Locke and um, Voltaire and Montesquieu and Rousseau, especially. Yeah, how much uh, our society could benefit from perhaps some enlightenment thinking today. Um, okay, so fun, fun American figures from history. Um, of course, he recently passed uh, a year or two ago. Uh, Chuck Yeager, being um, being obviously. Uh, uh, an aviation geek and just loving flying and and all that kind of thing yeah he's a great american character some really good stories about his past um, i feel like the recent top gun movie uh, maverick when maverick uh, i don't want to give spoilers away but he ends up um he ends up in this like town in the middle of nowhere in all of his flight gear and uh, that whole scene i feel like was paying homage to uh, to chuck yeager and a story from his past with the um f-104 starfighter yeah. I think for me, uh, my favorite for... British. Go ahead. Sorry, you go ahead. No, you no, go no, ahead. You go ahead. Okay, All right. Well, well, my favorite British, my favorite British um, figure is Winston Churchill. Uh, okay. That might be a little obvious for most people, but uh, yeah, yeah. We're talking about brave men, exceptionally brave man. Um, yeah. Defied um, the general feeling in his own country when people wanted appeasement uh, with the Nazis and wanted to make a settlement with uh, with Hitler, um, Churchill was really banging the drum of like, no, we have to stand up. We have to fight. We have to preserve democracy. And it's going to be a painful, costly fight for us. And it obviously was on a global scale. I mean, Britain had to give up its empire, uh, which is obviously one of the reasons why my family ended up back in Britain. But um, yeah, Churchill, exceptionally brave man. And a uh, funny man too had so many like interesting stories and had so many quips you know he thinks so quick on his feet i wish i had that <laughs> that wit yes I, I have heard some of those stories i think for me um it's not more of a, a exact figure in a way but i do sort of admire a, a lot of stuff like graham green road and ian fleming about sort of the the mi5 stuff and the sort of the I think I, I really do admire sometimes the British cunning just in general. Like, yeah, I think they do operate yeah. on a different level than we sort of do. Yeah. It's really interesting and fascinating to me. Like, you know, you talk about those stories like I was reading Graham Greene writing about because he was originally in MI5. That's why he had a lot of his writing is the way it is. And he'll talk yeah. about like, oh, you know, I just went out to uh, like uh like a caribbean island or something and i found the local british tavern in there and then we told our stories about traveling the globe and stuff like that and we don't really have quite quite a similar experience like that in america and that's that's really interesting so i guess for me it's sort of like the maybe almost like the british uh expat way like 
they're all around the world. The sun never sets. The sun never like, sets. Like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we really are. There's a there's a there's a lot of us here in Lexington. I found um, we have our own like little club now on uh, Facebook. Um, it, it's surprising, how, you know. Just um, like two years ago, I was um, in the hospital and ha- had like minor surgery, and and I was coming around from anaesthetic. Um, the nurse was like, "Oh, you're from England. Well, we have a nurse here in our unit who's from England." And so <laughs> she and I just started talking, and I was kind of dazed with anaesthetic. But it's just amazing how. You can go anywhere and and um and I find people from home and we we swap stories and experiences. There's there's a surprising number of us here. But yeah, so I've always admired that because Graham Greene wrote a lot of novels about that, and you can just tell it's it's prevalent. Yeah. Uh I guess uh we got a little bit of time left here. I won't bore everybody to death. Uh I guess I'll do a fun one though. Uh do you have a do you have a do you have a you do you have a football club i'm going to probably make any of your british friends mad because i'm a i'm a liverpool supporter because of jürgen klopp i like your okay. style of football i think it's very interesting and i do like liverpool as a city because it kind of you know having my family's from the milwaukee area and i find it to be a yeah. very sort of similar level in countries kind of deal like it's yeah. sort of an industrial hub that's not quite as popular as some of the other ones but it's had a lot of great people over the years you know so uh that's probably the least one of the least offensive um clubs of the big so-called big six that you could have chosen so uh, i would probably uh walked off if you'd said tottenham so um <laughs> that would have been that would even saying that is um i feel like I'm, I'm kind of cussing a little saying saying Tottenham. <laughs> that's that's an awful name. Is it, is it just, um, so just you can tell in London? Is that what it is, or is it just? No, it's uh well, it's partly that, but it's uh, it's because I'm an Arsenal fan. Um, ah, okay. And it's funny that you're a Liverpool fan because uh, I actually went to the University of Liverpool. Uh, that's where I got my undergraduate degree. Oh, that's awesome. Um, kind of looping back around to the beginning of our conversation. Um, I went to university and my degree is actually in American um, studies. So I got my degree in American history from the University of Liverpool. So That's I have amazing. like a kind of a British perspective on on American history. Um, and you mentioned Penny Lane earlier. Um, I used to walk past Penny Lane every day on my way to, to class. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> um, I am probably in dozens of um, tourist photographs because every time we walk past there is you could guarantee there would be a tour group somewhere and it's taking pictures of the uh, of the sign and they they had to paint it up on the wall high up because uh, people keep kept stealing it and then they tried painting it on the wall but people chiseled out the bricks so they oh ended up gosh. painting it like uh, it's crazy I, mean, I get so it's people... popular but chiseling out bricks that's that's an extra level right there yeah yeah. So anyway, uh, it was while I was at um, Liverpool getting my uh, undergraduate degree that um, while I was there, I mean, I'd always liked football, but I never really had a team as such. Um, and everyone kept running around talking about Liverpool. And I was like, yeah, but they're a northern team. And I'm from the south. I'm from London. i got to have a team. And so um, I was drawn to Arsenal. And I know a lot of people think, well, it's the late 90s. So you just like them because they were successful. Um, it's I, Again, it, being a historian, um, 
I just love their history as well. They were a, a munitions factory team originally back in the late 19th century um, in Woolwich, um, which is the south of London. And uh, they were the Royal Arsenal team, hence the name, because um, they were associated with the munitions factory. And so with my family's like military history and connections to the to the military, I thought, yeah, that's the team for me. I want to cheer for them. So. Yeah, and I've stuck with them ever since, and uh, I'm pretty diehard. I don't know if you can see behind me the photographs on the wall. That's my uh, Arsenal Hall of Fame, so our legendary players up there. That's awesome. I didn't know that story about Arsenal. That's really cool. That's a lot like the Green Bay Packers story. Uh, oh, okay. They were actually a meat packing plant, and they all made a team, okay. so they were the Green Bay Packers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Similar kind yeah. of story, you know, just a bunch of guys. A lot of teams game. in uh, a lot of teams in England were like that. Uh, for example, West Ham, um, they they were the uh, they they were associated with the Thames Ironworks. I think they were shipbuilders, and oh, so they were okay. a world team, factory team. They like built ships, and then in their spare time, they went and played football. And their great rivals are uh, Millwall, who are not even in the Premier League. They're I think they're in the Championship. I think they're actually doing quite well at the moment. Um, they were. Oh, it escapes me now. I don't remember. They were another kind of works team. So, you know, factory workers and then in their spare time, they they played football. So, yeah, I just love that history about about soccer. That's awesome. That's really cool. Well, uh, we're almost reaching time. Is there anything else you wanted to cover or anything else you felt like we should talk about? Um, I felt like we kind of went around the houses a little bit. We kind of talked about <laughs> all kinds of different things. It was yeah. uh, it was fun. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really awesome. Um, I guess one thing I guess one thing that we didn't talk about that maybe your listeners would be interested in is why I'm here. Um so why are you? Um, um I studied over here uh in my third year at university. I was up in Michigan, um a little place called um Holland, um which uh, I know where um, that is. Center of Dutch immigration, yeah, in uh, Michigan and I was at Hope College there. Um absolutely loved my time there. And uh, while I was studying here, I actually became a Christian. And so went back to the UK, graduated, uh, moved back home to London and um, started worshipping at a Church of Christ, um, biggest Church of Christ in the UK, Wembley. And um, it was one day, 2003, that I met my wife there, my future wife. She was uh, she's from Tennessee. She was on a mission trip. Um, ironically, it was her last day in uh, in uh, cool. England. And so, made quite uh, a impression. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think. And the funny thing is, we kind of talked, uh, both a little bit sort of reserved, but shy. And I think we felt the connection. And um, neither one of us had the confidence to say, well, what's your email? Or how about, how about we write? And so she went and did her thing. And I went home. And I was kicking myself for the rest of that week, thinking, man, I should have got that girl's number. She was pretty cute. I liked her. So I went back to church the following week and there was a mutual friend of ours that she had known from previous travels uh, and that I knew who hadn't been there the week before. Who was like, oh, this girl from America just emailed me and she she met you last week and she wants your email address. So, ah! so that was definitely a God thing. It was like, that is awesome. <laughs> That's really funny so, you bring up that Wembley Church of Christ because I was looking up. Uh, they play, you know, NFL games there now. Right. Yeah. And I was yeah. looking and 
I joked with my friend who's over there that uh, that area is like Little America in Britain now because there's like a KFC like, and a yeah. Pizza Hut yeah. and there's this Church of Christ there. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That's um, used to have a lot of Americans come through that church um, and people who were actually in the UK working like there were um, we had guys from Shell that were there, um, servicemen that were based in the UK. So we had like a little american sort of um group within our church well that's really cool i'm glad you met her i'm glad you 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 decided to come here was it was it what really was the the biggest what made you really want to just to say that's it i'm coming here was it just her or was it just like in general you're yeah, like, i think it was more i was i was always uh interested in coming to america i won't lie that you know um being born in rhodesia i was able to enter the green card lottery every year um which is closed to uk citizens because so many british people come and live here anyway through work and whatever and so they try to diversify the number of immigrants that that come to the uk uh, to the us so that was an avenue for me so i was always secretly hoping i might win the green card lottery to be able to be able to come here and again it was a god thing that uh, that i met my wife and I was able to come here but um one of the large, biggest reasons why we chose to settle here was just the uh, the cost of living is just so so high in the uk um we would uh given a, my work as a teacher and her work in the hospital in a clinical setting we're not paid huge amounts of money so we would really struggle to begin to be getting on the property ladder in in england that's funny you bring that up that is the number one subject that comes up every time i talk to internationals they just <laughs> They get so jealous of, you know, what I can afford here, how I can live here, the lifestyle yeah. I can have here. Yeah. And we really got the best here in central Kentucky because we have, you know, the um, we have some of the nicer things right here, but we still are next to sort of an area that's not super developed. Right. So we're yeah. we got yeah. like a really good balance here. And it's That's it's right. awesome. I it's I don't really know where you could live better for the money than here. You know. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Is, yeah. Is there anything you miss though? Is there anything besides the the healthcare thing? Is there anything you <laughs> you miss? Anything making you want to go? Man, maybe I should go back to London yeah. once. You know, I sometimes think of like uh, the experience of the earliest English migrants who came here, and you know they left everything. There was no going back almost you know once they were here they were here and um we're just so blessed to live in the time that we do that it's just so easy to to pick up the things that maybe even like 10 15 perhaps even 20 years ago would have been big misses you know like for example soccer i mean it's on it's on tv now british english premier league you know it's so easy to pick up and watch the games um grocery stores you can find anything just about anything in grocery stores nowadays and if you can't then you click of a button you got it on amazon so um obviously the big thing is family you know my family's all mm -hmm. back home and it's hard to see them sometimes uh, i think the last well last time we were there was pre-pandemic so it's been it's been a while and with the cost of airfares uh it's just really hard to get back well, you know, it's it's funny you bring that up. They did a poll the other day. 63% of Americans have never left the country. I haven't either. I've been all over America, but I've never right. left the country. Yeah, you know, that's something that English people like to beat 
beat Americans over the head with. It's like, oh, so few of you people have passports, so few of you travel outside the country. But if you've actually spent time in America, like, why would you need to go anywhere else? You know, that's, America's that's what I always say. It's such a diverse country. There's so many different things to see, so many different places to go. And you have such a diversity of different cultures and experiences in America anyway. Uh, you know, minus the, you know, the whole geography barrier with the, you know, great big oceans on both sides of the country that makes it hard to, to get anywhere else. You've got so much here anyway you can see that it's a real deterrence to to people who might want to go overseas because why travel to Europe for thousands and thousands of dollars when I can go to a different state for a few hundred dollars? Yeah, my company uh, sent me to San Diego this summer. It was the first time I'd ever been there. And I just thought to myself, you know, didn't need to leave America for that either. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's, uh, yeah, I mean, there's just so much, you know, even for me, Having grown up, I've lived in five states, but I, uh, I, my family's originally from Wisconsin, and then I lived in North Carolina for a while before here. And even between those three states, I've experienced almost like three different countries, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I've lived in Michigan um, during my year abroad, and uh, I spent the summer after that year abroad, um, living with cousins, actually have cousins that live here. Uh, they were down in Georgia at the time, and my wife's family's from Tennessee and living here in Kentucky, and there's distinct differences between all those different places. Yeah. Well, cool. I don't know if I have anything else. I beat the horse to death like I always do on my episodes, but <laughs> maybe sometime if we get bored here in a couple of weeks, we could do a presidential tier list. That'd be funny. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yep. That, that sounds interesting. Yeah. <laughs> if you get if you're game for that, I don't know. That might that I might, might make I you might have to brush up a little bit. That that might make yeah. you make moral judgments on some presidents you may or may not be comfortable with. But you know. Right. Well, you know, I'm familiar with because I teach obviously the the founding era and then the new republic. So up until Lincoln, I'm kind of yeah, I've got those guys pretty nailed on. You know. But and it's been a long time since I've really had any sort of 20th century, late 19th and 20th century history. So I might have to brush it up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, those yeah, late uh, 1800s ones, those are the hardest ones to keep uh, keeping your, your memory there. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. They were kind of uh, almost just keeping the hot seat warm, really. Not much yeah. was, uh, well, it'd be too easy to say they didn't accomplish much, but uh, they're not particularly notable. Let's put it that yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess I'll let you go. We'll go off and do some other things this evening. Thanks, Thanks for dropping by, Jeremy. And uh, I, I think we'll you definitely me have to do this again sometime. And I, I guess maybe we'll we will do a tier list. I'll I'll tease people. Maybe I'll get them coming back for more. All right. <laughs> See you, everybody. Like Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks. Check out the Know Your Place podcast on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash knowyourplacepodcast, all one word, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash knowyourplacepodcast, all one word. And we will be coming soon to YouTube and iTunes, and maybe another social media platform near you. Special thanks to my wife, Sarah, and Jay Graff for the riff.
Bye.